Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you're watching this live, hello. If you're listening to it on the podcast, also, hello. Very chuffed, of course, to have our podcast up and running. So do look it up. Subscribe and give us five stars if you're there, just to get the word out. Um, we've got a very, very important show today. So I have to say, I thought this would happen, but it doesn't make it any less nauseating. There's only so much you can prepare for in terms of feeling physically sick. So we had nurses, rightly, being applauded including by Tory ministers, for their courage, their care, their commitment, their sacrifice, bringing, helping to carry this country through on their backs during our worst national emergency since the Nazis were at war with us. And those nurses who have been underpaid and undervalued for so long, their terms and conditions can constantly attacked, their rights and all the rest of it, Suddenly, there was a national consensus of all the people in this country, nurses, nurses, surely should have a better lot, better terms and conditions. We can't just, it would be hypocritical, wouldn't it? If we just applauded from our windows and on our doorsteps and on our balconies and, and said about how great nurses were and heard all the stories, including myself, of our relatives with COVID who were cared for and looked after, including in their worst moments, including as they died. And look what happens not even before this pandemic is over, as mass vaccination continues, the government are imposing what will turn out to be, when you take into account where inflation is heading, a real terms pay cut. And their outriders in the media are already out of the traps and going for them and trying to play the old politics of divide and rule. Look how badly many private sector workers' wages have been hit, which they have abominably under a conservative government. And the solution to that, what the Tories and their media outriders always say is, don't be angry that you've been mugged. Be angry that your neighbour down the road hasn't been mugged as much as you have. Instead of saying, well, actually, private sector workers should have better wages, it's let's drag nurses down. What a state. And it is no wonder that the polling shows huge anger amongst a public who have seen, in many cases, firsthand what nurses have done in this country. So we're going to talk very shortly to two fantastic nurses about what's actually happening, what this all means. And it's so important we hear those voices uh, front and centre. Just a bit of housekeeping. If you are watching this live um, and you're not watching it on YouTube, please click through to the YouTube link. It really helps support the show. Please press like uh, and subscribe. Uh, and you can press the notification bell and that gives you notifications when we do these videos. Uh, for those supporting us on Patreon, and we're about to do a new documentary about uh, the businesses that have profited from COVID, which only is possible because of your support on Patreon. 
uh, with our fantastic filmmaker. That's patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. You can also support us doing those sorts of documentaries and videos uh, by using Super Chat, as people are just doing already. You can ask questions, which I can put to our guests, and it helps support us and employ media workers to do the work that we're doing. But with with that all done, enough of me ranting and babbling. You've heard quite enough of that. I'm going to bring in two. We're very privileged, very honoured to have both of them uh, with us. Uh, and we're honoured, not least, because these are the voices that we should be hearing above all else. So let's bring in uh, Ruby and Holly. Hello to both of you. Hello, hello. Hiya. Just to kick off, let's just kick off, shall we? How do you feel? when you saw Tory ministers who, as it were, haven't given you the best lot in terms of over the last 10 years, in terms of what they've done to the NHS and and also to nurses' pay, they applauded you then, and now they're imposing what's going to be a real terms pay cut. Should we start with you, Holly? How do you feel about that? The applause from the Tory ministers are... Nauseating is probably one word I'd use to describe it. Um, like the clapping from the public and support from the public was amazing. And I don't think anyone, not just NHS workers, I don't think any um, key workers would dispute that. Like people down my road had posters up in support of NHS workers. My local bakers gave us cakes to take to work. Like it was amazing. But for the Tory ministers to do that after the way they've treated us over the last decade, you know, like we felt like we were just screaming into a void for 10 years about how stretched we are, how unsafe our wards are, how heavy our caseloads are, how much risk we're managing, 100,000 vacancies in the NHS, you know. Um, and then they kind of stood on their doorstep, like clapping politely. It's like, come on, give us what we need. How do you feel about it, Ruby? Um, I mean, I definitely agree with Holly that it was like it was an honour um, to see people have that kind of outpouring of adoration for NHS workers and key workers. Um, but it also felt incredibly hollow coming from Tory ministers, like you say, who have you know we've had a decade of austerity, and we are we were working in conditions which were created by their you know, their cuts to the public sector. Clapping us doesn't put food on our table. It doesn't put roofs over our heads. And actually creating NHS workers as heroes during a pandemic is just going to lead to, you know, moral injury, burnout, because we're not heroes. We're human beings. We're workers. Like we have to deal with the conditions that we are in um, during a pandemic. And clapping is, quite frankly, not recognition enough from, um, you know, the government and from ministers. In terms of what's happened over the last 10 years, because I think it's really important we talk about the context that this country went into the pandemic. Do you just talk, Holly, about your experience? It's it's now 11 years since the Tories entered Downing Street. Yeah. So in terms of the build-up to the pandemic, what kind of conditions, to, you know, what what's the experience been like working in the National Health Service as a nurse? So I was working as a nurse in the NHS when the Tories got into power 11 years ago. I was community nursing um, for adults with learning disabilities and mental health problems. Um, and that was about the time they started looking at bringing in their welfare reforms. Um, 
it was like, like brutal, actually, how some of my patients were treated, you know, forced to go across um, London to have assessments, places they didn't know where to go, having their benefits sanctioned, um, having their power cut off in their homes. I remember finding a man who lived alone trying to heat his house off a little gas hob um, because all his power had been cut off. And then it's just continued over the last decade. So I think whilst we're arguing for a pay rise now, you know, we've lost, the average nurse has lost 20% of their pay over the last decade because our pay just hasn't kept um, pace with the rate of inflation. Um, and I say nurses, but like I mean all workers across the NHS. I'm talking about admin, porters, domestics, the healthcare support workers, everyone, you know. Um, and yeah, it's been really difficult and it's not something new that we've been struggling like this. And the vacancies are rising. The pressure is increasing. Our waiting lists post-COVID are just astronomical. And we know we saw a survey this week that said one in three nursing staff want to leave. So how are we going to address the problem that's there without the resources to do our jobs? Ruby, how would you talk about your experience pre-pandemic over the last few years and how that left the NHS and, and nurses, I suppose, you know, as as the pandemic then hit? Um, it's something that's quite difficult to talk about. And I know um, me and Holly have been having a conversation about how, how we share our stories as nurses around this um, and as NHS workers, because this isn't, we haven't just, you know, been working in tough conditions over the past 12 months. Like this has been something that has been ongoing for 11 years and hasn't given up and hasn't changed. And we were burnt out massively before COVID ever hit. So you have an already, you know, under-resourced, exhausted workforce going into a pandemic where we are expected to work in a whole new ways, doing, you know, work that we've potentially never done before, caring for people in ways that we haven't been previously trained to. Um, my own experience as a nurse in the NHS has been mixed. I I started my training actually just as the Tories got into power. Um, and so I've kind of seen the shift of where, you know, we worked in a service that was was struggling in many ways, but didn't have, you know, the resource underfunding and the like the impact of much wider cuts to public services where you know we're seeing people who were attending a e departments where i worked who were coming in for kind of social and care reasons similar to you know the experiences that holly's just spoken to where actually if we had a much more robust public sector and you know um kind of social support for individuals that these issues wouldn't be impacting on health and well-being in the same way meaning that they were needing to um, access NHS services as well. Like health is a much bigger um, kind of concept to, to get hold of and to approach. And I don't think that the Tories have done any favours to the um, to NHS, certainly, and also across public services to kind of safeguard the NHS to deal with a massive incident or pandemic in the way that we have done. Um, it's yeah, it's been a roller coaster over the past 10 years being a nurse in the NHS. And Holly, in terms of the conditions of working during the pandemic, because this is quite, because the truth is with, with the pandemic for most people, it's been a case of, you know, lockdowns and, and all the rest of it. And 
most people haven't been able to see the reality of actually what it's like to be on on the front lines of of the pandemic. So, do you want to describe what what's it like? The conditions, the everyday stresses, the realities that really really come home for you. Yeah. So, I'm I'm a com- community practitioner. Um, I work in mental health, um, and my partner is as well. We both contracted COVID. He's actually still off work after a few months from being quite unwell, um, and I think what Ruby was saying, I suppose, links into how my experience has been at work about the increased levels of deprivation in society, which do put increased pressure on the healthcare services. And especially for the families that I work with, who um, really, really vulnerable families who need support and need protection from other public sector services such as social care um, and other things like that and that support for them just isn't there Um, so we've kind of been having to support people that we work with as best as we can but in really high risk situations and I know of colleagues who were having to buy their own masks from Screwfix and you know and ordering masks off eBay the conditions have just been appalling for healthcare workers up and down the country um it's been really really dangerous and those things were going on all the time that the Tories were out in the street clapping um so it's just been really demoralizing for everybody um and then to come out and be offered this one percent at the end has just has pushed people down even further i think and uh, we've got comments coming through like from Rajia, love and solidarity to holly and ruby uh so sorry uh for what you're going through i mean ruby do you want to do you want to talk about that the conditions of being a health worker in the midst of a pandemic what the realities are for for people on the front line yeah so i i actually left the nhs and then came back um so i left the nhs to go and teach nursing students uh in january last year and then i returned to support uh, the pandemic effort in about kind of may and have carried on working in my own free time <laughs> you know at weekends some evenings as well as teaching and what i've definitely noticed is like the kind of the limitations of our job during the pandemic have just increased so things that people may not consider about how how nurses feel um out on the front line you know we can't communicate with our colleagues in the same way we can't show empathy because you know we're limited by the ways that we can communicate with people the importance of things like touch and being able to hug people and um you know having those human connections that make our job just incredibly difficult to do because very much of our job is you know empathy and support as well as other very like technical and difficult things that we do and I think that is not always discussed and not always understood by people outside of healthcare, certainly, um, about the kind of the emotional impact that has on you as a worker. I remember like, so part of my job when I am out on the wards is supporting nurses on like multiple wards across a service. And one evening I took a call from a nurse who had had developed a temperature whilst on shift and needed to go home and this was a nurse who was working with covid positive patients who had been working during i think she worked one night shift where she she had to you know look after seven patients who died all in the same night and then she got a temperature and i had to talk to her over the phone and she said to me i'm scared and this is the reality that we're working in it is utterly terrifying and 
you know, you're working in those conditions where you're seeing the consequences of COVID and then you, you yourself are contracting it and you have to live with that fear every single day. And you have to live in that reality that you could die as a worker and as a nurse, that is utterly terrifying. Of course, mm. all too many nurses have indeed died in the course of this pandemic. And Holly, I mean, how do you think it's possible that NHS workers can be so undervalued? How has that become politically permissible and possible in British society in 2021, even surviving a pandemic? I think I think perhaps there's this assumption that, well, it's not an assumption, actually. NHS workers are, they're really dedicated to their job. They're committed to their work. That's why they work in the field that we all do. We know it's not easy. It's emotionally really draining. It's absolutely exhausting and it, it's physically grueling as well. It's it's all of those things. It's not, it's not an easy job. Um, I think the government tried to put across um, this argument, well, it's a vocation. And, and, you know, in some senses, I do agree it is a vocation. Um, but I think there's this sense that because of how passionate we are about work, um, we will never go on strike. We will never take firm action. We will just keep turning up and doing our job every day, like like most nurses have throughout the pandemic. I mean, the network of NHS staff I know up and down the country have, I've spoken to people the night before work and they've just been in tears. I can't face going into work tomorrow. I just, I'm terrified. I'm dreading it. I'm physically exhausted. I'm having um, recurring nightmares. I'm not sleeping, but they will turn up and they will do their job the next day and they will look after their patients the best they can. And I think perhaps there is a sense of that because people are so dedicated and they will turn up and they will give the best care that they can in a massively understaffed and underfunded service. Like we're stretched all the time, but we will always give a hundred percent. I mean, I can remember like eight years ago working on wards and working a long day, a 12 hour day, and there being no one to take over the night shift and staying all night. Like, there's not many jobs you would stay and do that in, but you do that to support your colleagues and you do that for your patients to keep them safe. And I definitely know that there'll be healthcare workers up and down the country that have similar stories that they've done things like that, done multiple shifts, you know, over 24 hours in a row. Um, it's not unheard of and we turn up and we do it. Um, and I think essentially that's, that's been quite abused by this government. But I think there is a real sense of anger now. And I think people are going to stand up and, and demand what they're owed and demand better. Better not just for um, the NHS and their colleagues, but better for their patients. We don't want patients sitting, patients in mental health crisis sitting on a two-year waiting list for psychological therapy, you know, 18 months for a routine operation. It's not right. And we're the ones who can stand up and shout the loudest about how wrong it is. And I think that's going to happen this time. What do you think, Ruby? In terms of the way you get the undervaluing of NHS workers, and also what I mentioned earlier is this, it's the divide and rule. Uh, well, actually, look how bad other workers have it in the private sector, for example, uh, that attempt to have this re the race to the bottom sort of uh, discourse that you get peddled by not just politicians, but by a lot of the media. 
Yeah, and I, well, I think austerity kind of lends itself to that kind of workers in competition with one another, you know, and and that's that's ultimately what the Tories want. It's the it's this very like divisive policy that they keep peddling, and as well, like it's it's not just nurses that, that are experiencing this. It's all healthcare workers. It's doctors. It's porters. It's domestic staff. It's admin staff. It's you know, it's teachers, it's firefighters, it's paramedics, everybody across the public sector is having this 1%, well, it's not a pay increase, is it? It's ultimately a pay cut. And it, it's a devaluing of the work that we do. And we can see this in the way that the teachers were treated at the beginning of this year, where their genuine concerns for their safety were not listened to by the government, where evidence that was, that was put to the government was ignored. Um, we can look at how people who have applied to go on furlough in order to provide care and childcare. Um, during the pandemic, what is it, nearly 80% of all of those applications have been denied. So workers are expected to homeschool and you know provide childcare, but also to carry on doing their jobs. And what that realistically means is that you know workers are taking on more work, the value of their work becomes less because they are doing more work in one day. And it's exactly the same for nurses. It's exactly the same for NHS workers, where we are being expected to fulfill more and more roles within the work that we do. Like Holly says, we, I've never experienced it where I've had to stay all night, but I've certainly worked a night shift where I did the work of five nurses. Like, and this is something where it's not uncommon. Every day we go to work and we are filling gaps and roles constantly. And we are also picking up overtime shifts to cover you know, those gaps so that our colleagues aren't experiencing working in like, you know, working shifts without enough staff on, that patients are receiving the care that they need, and also that we can feed ourselves. The amount of nurses and healthcare workers that go to food banks is utterly disgusting. I mean, beyond disgusting. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of in terms of all of that, <laughs> I guess the question I'd ask in terms of what what next? I mean, the polling shows that a majority of people would support strike action by nurses. And it's actually to get that level of support for strike, which is completely hypothetical, is 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 pretty striking. What's even more, uh, you know, I think really comes out of that poll is the fact that a very significant number of even conservative voters would support strike action. So what do you think in terms of the possibility, given public opinion is so ridiculously, absurdly on your side, on this, as you would expect. I mean, the fact that I have to say 20% or something of the population who think the settlement is actually fine, the worst, I mean, let's just be honest, you should, I know we shouldn't speak about the, you know, and it's not, how are we ever going to win these people over? You can't just dismiss and insult them, but you'd have to be pretty scummy in a <laughs> pandemic to support uh, a real terms pay cut for nurses. You know, the sort of people who the next door neighbor's kids kick a football in the garden, they get a fork in. Like, we all know who these people are. They exist. They live amongst <laughs> us. They're just really rude, horrible people in every selfish, grasping, horrible, nasty idiots. No interest in winning, winning over that 20% of the population. But anyway, strike action. What do you think, Holly, about the possibility of strike action? Yeah. Um... 
Yeah, but thinking about those people, the, the the scummy, horrible people you're talking about, this government have made people feel like that. I think I I truly believe that this government have created that, and we have a lot of people arguing back to us saying, you know, um, well, we didn't get a pay rise, and I had um someone in the police force saying to me, well, you know, we're we're down staff, and we we haven't had a pay rise, we have to carry on. And I'm like, yeah, you should stand up and get involved in your unions and fight for better as well, like. The government's been shit to you too, you know. Um, but yeah, in regard to strike action, I think I think it's quite likely. I think it would be helpful if all of our unions would unite, possibly, um, on a common pay ask, so that we're all fighting for the same thing. So that workers and because we're we're obviously in a variety of of unions, I'm a I'm a member of GMB, but nurses and NHS workers are members of all other unions. So it'd be quite good if they would unite. Um, but I think we work in, I know, like we're the UK's biggest safety critical profession and we do not have safe staffing levels. And there is no way we are going to get back to those safe staffing levels without a pay increase to retain staff um, and recruit new staff and get students coming through, you know, who... Well, they've had fees and had the bursary scrap, but that's like a whole other argument to be having. Um, and I think if what we need to do is take industrial action to preserve our patient safety long term, then people will do it. What do you think in terms of next X, Ruby? What do you think about the, possi- the possibility of strike action? And what can as well, what can people who obviously that vast well of solidarity and support, so what can people do to support health workers? in the midst of all of this. Yeah, me, me and Holly were actually talking about this just before just before we came on about like, this is kind of a golden moment for unions and for, for workers' rights. Like this isn't just affecting a, you know, a group of, of workers. Like, you know, we had the doctor's strike, is it 2017? Where, yeah. um, you know, that was one group of like workers and we, we showed solidarity and we supported their industrial action. But actually this is affecting multiple professions across multiple public sectors that we have this moment to you know come together to to look at what it is that we want to demand to demand a pay increase that is representative of not only you know inflation and our living conditions but also the work that we have put in over the past 12 months um and also to think i know holly's just brought up you know the lack of bursary and our working conditions but those are things that we should be continuing to take to the table like this isn't just about pay, this is about, you know, a long term security for the NHS and for all public sectors. Uh, you know, we want to get, have students that can come on to our professional courses, that can thrive, that can, you know, become amazing doctors, nurses, physios once they qualify and that they have the right conditions to do that in and that they are economically sound. Um, and these are something, these are things that we shouldn't you know, we can't separate these things out. These are like, these issues have all been caused by the Tories over the past 10 years. And we have a moment to actually, you know, bottle them all together and do something about it and show with, you know, meaningful industrial action that we're not going to take it anymore. I think in terms of people showing solidarity to us, continue to support our work, continue to, you know, say that you will support strike action um if you are able to 
and if you have the means to then if that if it does come to it in this hypothetical situation which I, is it wrong to hope that it does happen um like then then donate money to strike funds we can't you know if it's safe at the time to go out and support picket lines then do um you know or if you can join like an online picket or do some online campaigning and show solidarity that way um i think something for me that was really lovely during the you know the first lockdown was being able to wander around the streets and see signs and windows saying like we support key workers we support nhs workers um you know people showing like solidarity in ways you know like holly said about her baker giving us some buns um but also thinking about how how we support workers who are on strike and showing that kind of like mutual aid element and bringing content like I say bringing that back in, but continuing it and maybe extending it to striking workers. I have to say, I mean, if it does come to strike action, I think it will be one of the most supported strike funds yeah. in the history of this country. Uh, there will be no shortage of people. The 20% we've written off of the population, just according to the polling aside, I think a vast number of people yeah. will, will be there and if possible to stand on those picket lines and to give you the support that you desperately deserve i think this is a key this is a key decisive struggle which i think you know if you're it, it, you know that eternal question that every generation has to ask whose side are you on either tory ministers giving big bungs to big business like amazon or nurses who carry the country through a pandemic i think most people know whose side they're on but we really appreciate both of you coming on and speaking so eloqu eloquently from the heart and just laying down the facts as it is and you know a huge army of people will be on your side uh, in, the, in the struggles ahead. But thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us on, Owen. Take care, both of you. Solidarity. Oh, it's just, it is actually quite just so nauseating. I actually feel genuinely just so angry about this. And we need to channel that anger. That's what we need to do. Uh, for those uh, watching live, uh, do click through to YouTube to watch it and uh, give us a like. Keep the super chats coming. We really appreciate them. Let's bring in now two of my compañeros, Matt Zalcos and Nelly Mayhagen, which I said very fast. Hello. You did. Hi, Hello. Hi. Hi, yeah. Miss your, miss your little faces. I'm not seeing yeah. your ages, either of you. I, I've like got my hair scraped back because of lo lockdown. I haven't had a haircut for like eight months. Uh, what you think you're oh oh it's so hard for you in your hair. I look look at me. I look like a parody of Boris Johnson. I'm, apparently, I'm drinking I'm, I'm having a glass of wine by the way, because we used to drink when we did the podcast together, so I thought maybe Oh we did. The agit pod days. Oh come on, mm. memories. I feel a bit emotional. Good times. I'm not drinking right. except for Friday and Saturday, so I've been very, very good. Carry oh on. yeah, I forgot, yeah, you're on your health kick. Yeah. Go on, Matt. And I was just gonna say I haven't had a black market haircut. I I did shave my head on Christmas, and this is how long it takes to grow. So, I, I, I thought maybe I thought maybe you would you might do that, Owen. You might have you know just number one all over. No, I, I just think it? I might have the wrong shaped head, and I just don't want to gamble and find out that I do actually have a very silly. My, when I was a kid, uh, when I was a my my parents used to call me Emperor Mekon. If everyone now Google's Emperor Mekon, you'll see what they were getting at—a very very large forehead. It's a not cone head. Isn't he yeah. like a cone head? Yeah. Your brother told me that actually. Oh, did he? Oh, that's sweet, yeah, he isn't it? Yeah. Love him. <laughs> the little 
Um, anyway, it's a pleasure to have you both on, and uh, soon we will be able to um, rib each other in person, which would be great. And I'm definitely looking forward to the yeah, We can people. hug, we can spit in each other's mouths, we can do anything. <laughs> Okay, looking forward to gobbing in your mouth. <laughs> right, let's just go straight on to this. I have to say, genuinely, I, look, it was obvious what was going to happen. It was obvious what was going to happen. We, they were going to applaud nurses and other key workers, and then the opportune moment came, they were going to kick them. But it, as I've said, it, it it doesn't make it less nauseating. I mean, Ellie, what do you think? What do you Genuinely, what do you think the political logic they have is they essentially can... I mean, is it hubris, and actually this is going to be very damaging for them, or have they calculated, and let's talk about Labour in a bit, we'll talk about the Tories first, and then we'll, we better talk about Labour, but do you think they're just calculating that they can get away with it, and what does that say? I think, like, when you look at the budget as a whole, the whole budget was very much um, appearance over substance, right? So, like, I think, like, a lot of people really liked it, it was really popular, and if you kind of dig in, but if you like, so like on the surface, it was things like we're going to extend furlough, we're going to um, we're going to increase corporation tax. It sort of seemed on the surface like a budget that you know John McDonnell might propose. But as John McDonnell himself said, it was all style and no substance because actually underneath that there were. Um, policies to uh, increase house prices. They were like cutting the green home scheme. Um, you know, there was like a lot of stuff that was really bad. And I just think the nurses situation is an extension of that, which is that they're saying we're going to give them a pay rise and which sounds good. But then when you look underneath it, you see that it's a 1% pay rise, which is essentially a pay cut. So I think it's basically the way that the Tories have been you know, working all along, which is that they try to promise things that sound good on the surface, but when you actually dig underneath them, they're very, very bad. And often they get away with it, but sometimes they don't because, you know, so in this case, you've got a group of people who have always been quite beloved, but are even more beloved at the moment because of the pandemic, actively coming out and saying, this is not okay. And I think your guest earlier was right about this being a golden age for the unions as well, because I think maybe they've underestimated how organized public sector unions are. I mean, we saw the same thing with teachers unions over schools going back. So I think I think this is not really surprising. It's like very in keeping with how this government behaves. And I suppose what I, I should say is the left should take some comfort in the fact that they feel like it's our policies that they need to pretend to have because they weren't doing that like 10 years ago 10 years ago they were just like now we're just going to cut everything and they were being like upfront about that whereas now they've got to pretend to be left wing which is quite a good sign for us because it shows that left wing policies are what people want what do you think Matt? i mean do you think this is hubris and actually this is the achilles heel in a budget that got pretty fawning coverage from most of the British media, which unapologetically acts as the propaganda wing of the Conservative government? Or do you think, actually, they'll kind of get away with it? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think they'll probably end up U-turning, given the backlash. I think that, that fundamentally, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson care about what the public think. They care about being popular, particularly Sunak, who's got a very carefully crafted public persona. Uh, I don't think that either of them are that ideological in terms of the, you know, the, in the context of the Tory party. I think that they did what they thought they could get away with, but I think that they'll end up U-turning. Um, but they thought they could get away with it, I think, because of the state of the opposition at the moment. I think we, exactly as Ellie says, the government, the government has identified that the rhetoric of McDonaldism is pretty much you know, John McDonald's policies is pretty much the center of gravity. So they have to, at the very least, emulate that rhetoric. But unfortunately, the substance isn't there, but we haven't got a Labour Party that's pushing the government to make good on its left-wing rhetoric. We've got a Labour Party that's, if anything, trying to position itself as being acceptable to the establishment. And more than anything, that's, they've been completely wrong-footed by, by Sunak's budget by the positioning of the Conservative Party, by the rhetoric of the Conservative Party. And I think if, the, if, if Labour was, if Keir Starmer and the leadership simply stuck to the 10 pledges that he made in the leadership contest and emulated something along the lines of the 2017 manifesto, which is I think what the membership voted for. Uh, they voted for you know 2017 manifesto policies, but delivered with, more competence, quote unquote, and by someone in, someone wearing a suit, that's primarily what they voted for in the leadership contest, um, then I don't think we'd be in this situation. I don't think the government would have would have made that mistake because I think it has been, it is a mistake. And look, the Tories we know were terrified of Jeremy Corbyn winning an election. It's been a worse nightmare because it's socialism. He's a socialist and that's something they really wanted to avoid at all costs. And they, they threw everything at stopping him becoming prime minister. I feel like they're not that bothered about Starmer winning or losing ground to Starmer. I feel like they, they even, if, even if he won, they wouldn't be sort of too concerned about how much he would disrupt the economic status quo. So I don't think they're that bothered by the opposition. And that's a terrible, that's a terrible indictment really of, of where the leadership's got to less than a year in. Uh, and given, you know, what we've been through as a country. Yeah, I mean, let's just talk about Labour now. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> look, let's just think about their, their positioning, their fascinating positioning. So originally what they did is they briefed uh, there wouldn't be any tax increases. And they kind of were trying to attempt to spin this as kind of Keynesianism, that at this part of the economic cycle, you do not increase taxes. And, uh, you know, you got... Labour MPs, I won't know, actually I will know them, people like Toby Perkins, 
who argued that Ed Miliband didn't support cuts enough are now trying to suddenly appropriate anti-austerity rhetoric against the left, which is, you've got to commend them. It's trolling on quite an amusingly epic scale. Like you have to appreciate that level of gaslighting uh, and that level of front. But what they did, so what they did is they originally Labour opposed all tax increases. That's what they said. Um, and then on, on corporation tax, they then started briefing, well, they could support them after a few years, which is always what was going to be proposed anyway. Uh, and then they ended up U-turning and, and doing that. Then they said they might support the freezing of the tax thresholds. Then they said, actually, we do support freezing the tax thresholds. And then that was Thursday. And now today they're saying we oppose the freezing of the, of the thresholds. Like even the politics is obviously just terrible. It's terrible politics. But also it's just incompetent. It's bad, bad, bad management and it's bad comms. And this lot was supposed to be, uh, you know, they said, we'll keep the principles domestically on domestic issues, but we'll throw in a bit of competence and we're not actually getting either of those things. What's going on, Ellie? So I think Labour should have learned from, oh, well, this side of the Labour Party should have learned from the Owen Smith campaign that if you're going to stand on a platform of Jeremy Corbyn but competent, you actually have to be competent, you know, and if you're not, then, then there's suddenly no reason for you to exist because you haven't given any other reason for your existence. Like Jeremy Corbyn, I'm going to be honest with your viewers, I think Jeremy Corbyn could be quite incompetent, but there's, you know, there were re concrete reasons to support Jeremy Corbyn. Sorry, I'm gesticulating wildly until my computer's moving. Um, there were concrete reasons to support Jeremy Corbyn beyond competence. Like he offered a lot of stuff other than being competent. So in the moments where he was incompetent, his supporters chose to stick with him because there was wider, more important reasons to do that. But with Keir Starmer, when he's incompetent, then the whole reason for his existence sort of comes into question. I mean, his existence as a political figure, obviously, comes into question because that's all that he's offered. And in terms of the uh, the tax rises fiasco, I mean, I think I, I expect what's happened as somebody who's like spent a lot of time listening to focus groups. I expect what's happened is that. Labour's focus groups are full of people saying, yeah, the furlough scheme's all well and good, but we're going to be paying for it with our taxes next year. And they thought, okay, let's come up with this thing where we say no tax rises. And they haven't anticipated that the Tories would try to raise corporation tax. And when that happened, they're, then they're like, shit, we, now, we have to, like, now we have to oppose this because we said no tax rises. So it's not that they've like, strategically thought this was a good thing to do. It's more that they've boxed themselves in. And I suppose, like, if anyone from the Labour Party was watching this who was responsible for that, I suppose I would say making a U-turn at this point is not as damaging as sticking with your incredibly unpopular, sort of incoherent policy of, um, of opposing a rise to corporation tax, which even Conservative voters don't agree with you on. You know, and I think, like, I think they've sort of stuck with that for a while because they didn't want to seem like they were flip-flopping. But now they kind of are flip-flopping because it was not really uh, like a, a sustainable position for them. And I think, you know, there are actually economic reasons to sort of oppose a corporation tax rise at this point. I'm not in favor of it, just to say. But the problem, this is not about economics. This is about politics. And politics is what allows certain kinds of economics to happen. 
So, you know, they've, I think they've really misjudged the politics here and they've boxed themselves in. And it's ended up undermining their key cell, which is competence. So I think that is why you're seeing these like declining poll ratings. And I think what we can see from the poll ratings is that, yes, some people are like maybe maybe like four in 10 of the people that are leaving Labour, like are going back to the Tories because of the vaccine programme being quite successful. But others, and some are going Lib Dem and Green, but others are just not going anywhere. Because so a lot of Labour's coalition, and this is what makes Labour different from the Conservative Party, a lot of the people that Labour needs to put it into power are people that need a reason to go out and vote. They're not people who go out and vote habitually. They need a reason to go out and vote. And this has like de depreciated the reason to vote for Labour. And so they're just kind of going, meh. And that's not good. I mean, also, sorry, long point. The last thing that we need to remember is that the electoral coalition that Labour needs to and can stitch together this time is very different from the one that Blair had in 1997. So I think the idea of like, oh, people will vote for us because there's nowhere else to go is much riskier this time. Because actually, if people stay at home for this Labour government, then they will lose votes that they really need. And that's the difference. Matt, I mean, do you think the issue is that the problem they have is that they don't really have any clear vision at all. Like there was no obvious clear vision of this is what we want to do with power. And the substitute for that, or the vacuums kind of, it's been filled by focus groups of people who voted for the Conservatives back in 2019. And one of the things that focus groups say during a kind of cliche, if you want a round of applause in question time or in the audience, you say, don't play politics. Sort of thing people say. And they would have said that in focus groups. Um, during the financial crash, I bet you everything. The Tories would have heard back from focus groups, we don't want you playing politics. But what the Tories did is say, rather than just repeating back what focus groups tell us, we can actually make the political weather. So we, we can actually, we'll say instead that actually Labour spent too much money, even though we backed them pound for pound, but we're shameless. Politics is an ugly game. We'll just make it up. And we'll say that they spent too much money. That's why we have this terrible deficit not because tax revenues have collapsed because of the recession, whilst we've had to increase spending on uh, social security and to keep the economy afloat, but because of too much spending and, and that, you know, we'll, they didn't fix the roof while the sun was shining, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, but Labour aren't doing that now. They're not saying, well, actually, we can make the political weather. They're just thinking to themselves, these are the focus groups of voters that we need to win back. We just need to repeat back what they're telling us. Uh, and that means uh, not, you know, I mean, not pinning the pandemic on the government uh, and being aggressive in doing so, even though we've had one of the most catastrophic handlings of the pandemic with one of the worst death tolls, worst death rates and worst economic consequences. Uh, and they don't have a vision gives you confidence, doesn't it? I mean, that's what Corbyn's team had. They always had this general vision of what of, of the country they were trying to build, but they don't have the A to B bit to sustain them. So it just ends up with these zigzagging around uh, as they try and process what data from focus groups tell them and try and fit that into the political realities they face day to day. Yeah, I think a lot um, about this particular leadership can be uh, understood through the prism of uh, trying to win back over 65s. Uh, and even now in the YouGov poll that I think put us 13 points behind, Labour's still just about ahead uh, among working age voters, so 18 to 65 year olds. And it's the over 65s to where 
Labour has a serious problem, and that is a systemic problem because of the demographic differences uh, among various generations. So the over 65s are the wealthiest demographic, the most likely, they're more likely to be asset, um, asset rich, buy to let landlords, they're more likely to, they're, they're retired, uh, they're not sort of affected by the uh, volatility of the economy. Um, so Labour's doing everything it can and reorientating itself to try to appeal to over 65s. And of course, we had the same issue. Jeremy Corbyn had the same issue. And in 2017, we, and I still believe 2017 will be the closest in our generation that Labour will come to forming a government. I know that we, we were quite a way off still, but I think, you know, I just don't see how we're going to get, any, get anywhere near that with this leadership. And we did, we did it in 2017. We, we got the hung parliament because we were able to expand the electoral coalition exactly expand the voter base exactly as ellie says and we didn't and obviously we were helped in many respects by the dementia tax and the tories kind of uh, i think their policies and the terrible campaign frankly that meant that a lot of their older voters just stayed at home and didn't vote uh, but the big problem is with demographics and i feel like everything that they're doing uh, to try to appeal to the over 65s um, is via the prism of the media and they've, they've obviously thought well the over 65s news consumption comes from the mainstream press they're the ones that read newspapers um, sadly I mean it's their loss but they're probably not watching the, the Owen Jones show on Sunday nights but that's probably what they're thinking we've got to get the press on side we've got to get the media on side and then we can win over the over 65s and therefore they're playing games exactly as you say they're playing they're trying to play the media and they're trying to play games unfortunately what that's meaning is they lack courage and they're coming across as inauthentic and they're losing younger people and that's what we've seen now is the media has actually turned on them after a kind of i think extended honeymoon has now started to turn on starmer as has the, the commentariat so we're losing young people we're not appealing to old people, despite that being our apparently our number one priority. So that's why we're polling 33% in a, in a pandemic and, and one that you know the government has, by all accounts, hand, handled pretty badly. I don't understand why they didn't base an entire strategy around insourcing, around the, the waste that has gone on with test and trace. I mean, that, that for me, uh, then you capture the appeal of the NHS, you capture uh, you know, old, older voters, that's their priority. They want to see a publicly run NHS. Um, but I think that's because of the politics. I think that they, they've, they've not wanted to appear anti-business or, that, you know, they've not wanted to appear too left-wing because they don't want to alienate the media. So I feel like it's almost a double-edged sword for them. And they bet the house on competence as a dividing line and then mass vaccination, the huge success story of the NHS vaccination programme incinerated that dividing line. I mean, Ellie, do you think to be generous to the Labour leadership, the issue is that Jeremy Corbyn, like the left used to be before 2015, there was a sense the left, we knew what we were against, but not what we were for. And that's because the left had been battered, driven into the political margins for so long. 
Uh, and it, we were in a defensive posture. Stop the cut, stop privatization, stop the world. I want to get off kind of thing. And then particularly after 2017, when there seemed to be the prospect of a radical government that forced the left to think, how do we actually lay the intellectual and political foundations for a transformative government? So you've got economists, you've got think tanks, you've got campaigners, all trying to, you know, and John McDonnell was very much at the heart of that. He was the intellectual beating heart of Corbynism, bringing a lot of those networks together. And And so now the left does actually have a sense of what kind of country would, would we like to build and how do we do it? And actually Corbyn's opponents, these arch opponents, they were in exile for a long time, but they didn't use that time to think of what of what they actually wanted. I remember Tom Watson set up this grouping in Parliament, Future Britain or something, to come up with an alternative perspective. And it came up with nothing, like absolutely nothing whatsoever. And if you look, I mean, because it's it's very parochial the way we talk about British politics, but if you're looking, you, you know, your Labour sister parties, most of whom were not obviously anywhere near the left in terms of their leadership, they've all collapsed to varying degrees and they're only in government in most cases, uh, in almost all cases, sorry, because they've made a pact with the radical left, including forming a coalition with them. And and that's the problem, that their cupboard is bare. They don't have any ideas to draw from. They either pick or choose our ideas on the left and, you know, or or they have nothing because they, you know, they can go back, you know, we've all read Fabian pamphlets in 2013. Well, not we all haven't to be fair because they're not all losers <laughs> like me which is like how do we delineate the frontiers of the st-? you know it's, it's it's so dry there's no concrete ideas there whatsoever that how, is that not the problem ellie is the new directive class think tank do you not think that's the problem um speaking as the new director of class think tank um i think what we're seeing here is like uh i i always believe that like product um uh, politics are ultimately a product of material circumstances, right? And like one of the things that um, the like Blairites uh, did very, very well in '97 and onwards is that they became very institutionally strong. So, like a lot of Blair's top team, for example, went off to run charities or they went into um, like working for banks and that kind of thing. And like. It was an ideology that really captured like the the professional managerial class and with it like a lot of political institutions. So it's very ideologically powerful and it's kind and it's meant that a lot of our institutions, including political parties, have tended to be still controlled by this form of politics, even as it loses popularity with um, the public. And what's happened since? sort of the 90s and the early 2000s is that we've had a series of crises like we've had the financial crisis we had iraq we had the expenses crisis and i often think we underestimate how important the expenses crisis was in this country um and what that's meant is that almost by accident the left's ideas are suddenly really popular because they're really the only ones that can resolve all these crises in a way that's actually progressive so like climate change the green industrial revolution stuff is clearly the best answer to that because the other answer is building border walls and that's very very bad and like the right answer i mean and um you know and then like mass inequality well we have all the answers to do with that so what you're getting in other countries, and correct me if I'm wrong, Owen, because I think you know more about the left in Spain than I do, politics in Spain than I do. But I think what you're seeing in like a country like Spain, for example, is the institutional power of like PSOE, which is kind of the Labour sister party, 
um, having to go into co coalition with the left party, which is Podemos, because it's Podemos that have got all of the ideas and the Podemos are sort of insurgent. So it's like a combination of ideas and institutions. But because of this party, like this country, we have the electoral system where there's only two parties, there's always only two parties that can really form a government. You've kind of got the the battle between um, the institutional party versus the left party happening within the same political party. And what you're seeing now is that um, the left lost because it was very, very institutionally weak. And there's lots of other reasons why Jeremy Corbyn lost, but that was a big reason because we were very weak structurally. And it's been the natural successor is the, the wing of the party that's very strong institutionally. So it has lots of connections in the media. It has people who run organizations before. It has, you know, people who know about communications and that kind of thing. But what they're finding once they get into power is that they don't have any ideas because it's us that have all the ideas. So that's why they're sort of left with like nothing to say. And I suppose if I was going to be kind to Keir Starmer, what I would say is that, that is not really his fault. That's a structural issue um, that is, we've seen across Europe. And, you know, and he's not responsible for sort of Pessoe being in trouble or like the PVDA in, in Holland being in trouble. You know, there is something happening across Europe. But he does have the opportunity to make Labour in this country the exception. And I think the way that he does that is by being less hostile to the left. Um, but of course, whether he'll do that really, you know, is, remains to be seen. Matt, what do you think the, la the left strategy is? Because, you know, I suppose what I could maybe see happening now is if Labour already 13 points behind before basically you get this wave of jubilation and relief, which will follow mass vaccination, the days get lighter, sunnier, warmer. And, and we and, and life becomes freer again. And the, Boris Johnson, if he's good at anything, he's good at kind of sunshine optimism and riding that kind of wave. And the danger is you get a Labour Party which doesn't have anything to say. It's not like Clement Attlee, you know, who you wouldn't have expected on paper to win a landslide victory in 1945. You'd think the wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill's party would have won the landslide, but of course they didn't. It was it was the Labour Party because Labour said, "Now we won the war. This is we need to win the peace, and we're we're uniquely placed to do that and cure the injustices that the war really illustrated and exacerbated." Um, which is obviously creating the welfare state and the NHS and public ownership of key utilities and industries. And the danger is you end up with stagnating and falling polls for Labour and for Keir Starmer. And then you get the the thing where Labour cry the, the leadership when it's in the tailspin does like let's have a re relaunch you know they do let's have they'll do a speech somewhere on some issue and and then and, and then they'll brief three months later about another leadership reset and the polls stagnate and fall and the I mean that that is where we're heading it's so obvious that's where we're heading what is the left strategy in all of this. Well, uh, I don't think we're going to win the peace with new premium bonds, which is what Starmer announced the other week. Um, I just feel like the lack of political imagination is going to cost us a huge amount in the long run. And, you know, the party is going to be weaker for it. So I just think we have to keep proposing ideas. I think um, Ellie's in a great position. I think it's been a great, that's a great appointment for class. And I think the left wing infrastructure that we have built off the back of the Corbyn leadership, which is not insignificant, I think we're in a much greater, stronger position than we were in 2015. Um, 
I think we've just got to keep producing ideas and keep showing that uh, we can we can influence not just the Labour Party, but we can influence government policy as well. And I mean, that's that's where I think the left should go. And I totally agree with Ellie, by the way, about um, uh, Starmer needing the left. And I feel like if you know, even the the Biden voter coalition uh, that was successful in the states, you know. Th- they kept the left on side. They felt like they, they, that was important. That was an important component. And they, and they did so at least until election day. Um, so I've, I don't understand. I don't think it's very pragmatic of them to sort of have this civil war ongoing that they keep throwing fuel on the fire. Uh, I, I really don't understand what the strategy is. I just feel like that they are eh, lashing out really after five years where they feel like they, you know, they haven't been in charge and they ought to have been. And now they're just unleashing this civil war. Um, and yeah, I think it's the, the Labour Party that will suffer and it's them that will suffer. Uh, but I really do think the Labour Party, if we're going to have a chance of a progressive government at some stage, it's probably not going to be in 2024, given the, the, the arithmetic and given the direction of travel of the Labour Party. But I think we've just got to keep young people on side. The demographics will change with time anyway. Uh, we just we've got to ensure that the Labour Party does things that are going to appeal to the working age population and particularly young people. It'd be a real shame to throw that all away, um, trying to appeal to a demographic of retired people that are frankly never going to support Labour anyway, by and large. Well, that cheery little bombshell. Um, but it is, a, I mean, before we wrap up, I mean, it is the generational divide because I, look, I abhor, as someone on the left, I abhor generational politics in the abstract um, because the cleavage that matters is class. But there's no point pretending that there isn't a unique generational divide that's opened up in politics, which isn't like 983 when Labour got absolutely smashed because young people voted for Margaret Thatcher's Tories. There wasn't a big divide in how people voted. And clearly... Under 40. Can I say that the generational divide is is a class divide? Uh, yeah. So I think you can marry the two together because, like, I think that young people have the politics that they do because they've been shut out of owning property and having a stable job and la la, which is ultimately a class problem. No, so but you are class working class. You can only be working class if you're 55 and a <laughs> you have two cars. You <laughs> have two cars, but you have an accent. Yeah, this is, um, it is. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the perception that work that being working class is an identity, and you have these kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's like a, cult, a cultural thing when it actually isn't at all. It's an economic relation, and I think that that's something that this is where I think you're right. It is a class divide fundamentally. It is about property owning and non-property owning. Exactly. It's. it's I mean, I think the, the flip is, and I, I hate it because I know a lot of people watching this and listening to the podcast. Obviously, will be like my mum is a left wing boomer. Of course, left wing boomers exist. Also, yeah. conservative uh, generation Z also exists. But overall, the polling is very clear that a large majority of people over sixty five support the conservatives. A large majority of under forty support Labour, and it is economic insecurity for younger people fused with social progressive values, and for older people, social conservatism plus. Triple lock pension, which I support, obviously, home ownership going up, um, and and their living standards being protected, which we support. But the irony is they've had social democracy protected um, correctly, and they're they're backing the neo neoliberalism for everybody else. Anyway, look, uh, thank you so much for the wisdom and insights. We'll get there eventually. Everything will be fine. 
Yeah, yeah. sorry for being so morbid. No, it's fine. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's going to be a tricky, a tricky... I think we're in a good position. I've said this, I say this a lot. I think we're in a good position. I know that, like, I know that it doesn't feel that way, but, like, you know, uh, as Matt was saying, we have we are in a much stronger position than we were in 2015, and in 2015 we somehow managed to take over the Labour Party. So imagine what we can do now, you know. And, yeah, and, and, I, it's, and, and given the, the direction of travel of the current leadership, it's no mystery as to why, really, is it? The why Jeremy Corbyn won. I mean, you can, yeah. it just, oh, it's suddenly come rushing back, all the reason why. And it's because of just how devoid of ideas they are. Exactly. And I sadly can't see that changing. Exactly. exactly. I mean, because people, one of the key reasons he won in 2015 was the intellectual and political exhaustion of all the wings of the Labour Party, which meant the most unlikely candidate possible who started in 200 to 1 could win. And that's they haven't resolved that structural problem at all, um, which is, I think, what's different from the 90s when they could use financialized driven growth, uh, a bubble which then exploded. But they did have and they did have things they could say, you know, like minimum wage, um, uh, windfall tax and privatized utilities, constitutional reform, gay rights. So they they did and they they crafted that in a kind of modernization mantra. And the cupboard's bare now. It's really empty. Anyway. And also, sorry, do you need to go? I'm wasting your time. That's what's more. No, I'm not wasting my time. Also, the other thing is, well, the left had a sustained structural defeat over a decade in the 80s. You know, it lost lots of its key institutions. The social, the uh, Soviet Union collapsed. And it doesn't matter whether you like the Soviet Union or not. The fact is that that was an ideological defeat for, like, socialism. And that that was sort of something that happened over a decade. The left lost money, it lost institutions, it lost uh, it's the ideology, it's left-wing ideology itself was defeated. But I don't think that anybody would argue that the phrase get Brexit done, which is what the won the last election, was an ideologically defeating phrase for the left. Like it wasn't. So that we've been politically defeated in the 2019 election. And I have to credit Gary Young for this. This is his argument, not mine, which I'm repeating, but I do agree with it. We were politically defeated in 2019, but we weren't ideologically defeated. And in terms of institutionally, which is the other form of defeat, we're building. I mean, you had like, what, half a million people on a, an NEU, which is the teachers union Zoom call, you know, and what your nurses then were talking about unions. Like, we're, we're actually in the ascendancy, in, in institutionally, ideologically. It's just that politically we're losing. Yeah, but, I mean, under, yeah. The, under 40s, we have a kind of hegemony that we didn't have in the 80s and 90s. It's, I mean, it is a, you know, the cliche that people often rely on, which is, you know, you're young and you're radical and then you're schooled by the realities of the university of life. It, is, it just isn't true because I always say this a lot, but in 1968, the most pro-Vietnam War generation were the young, the most anti-Vietnam War generation were the old and the mid eighties, the most pro-Reagan demographic were the young. Uh, and also in 1983, the young voted over 40, about 42% of 18 to 24 year olds voted fat for Thatcher as opposed to 31% for Michael Foote's Labour Party. Something that, that, that's what the thing is because we get a lot of dancing on our graves, but what they, they can't wish that away. Our, 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 the structural reasons for our existence have not been wished away. And the structural reasons why the centrist faction have run out of ideas uh, for the for the world in which we live, that hasn't gone away either. And that's the it's issue. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Like, 
they're going to, the climate change is going to get worse. Inequality is going to get worse. Like it's going to be harder for young people to access housing. So like the circumstances are only more like only mean that left-wing ideas are more important, not less. Yeah. And it's so important. The labor leadership doesn't alienate that demographic. So we, we can't allow young people, people who have been trapped, uh, shut out of, of the economic system to believe that politics can't change things and that would be that's even more dangerous i think so it's so important the labor leadership sticks to at least the course that was set out in that leadership contest by keir starmer and you know doesn't feel like we're trying to appeal to mondeo man now like it's the 90s you know exactly mm -hmm. as you say it wasn't it's not young people that have gone over to thatcher it this is we've got to we've got to maintain our radical edge and the left has to hold the leadership to account for the promises that it made Partly for its own good, because uh, it re not just reeks of inauthenticity. The argument is very clear. If you can lie to one electorate, you'll do it again. So probably not a good idea to do that. Um, we will leave it there because we've had a very long, but excellent show. And again, just because I didn't say at the outset, huge congrats to Ellie for her new job as director Thank of class, which will be a real hub of political and intellectual Thank energy. You. And we can mm -hmm. tease that with Matt's incredible campaigning abilities, because obviously he has actually changed the law well as part of the struggle not just him single-handedly but uh, <laughs> has played a big big role in terms of anti-gambling um campaigning and the left can learn a lot from that kind of um those those sorts of skills so we're very lucky to have both on the left and we're lucky to have you both on the show so thank you so much and i can't wait thank to you. hang out just sit in a park yeah in a pub in a pub yeah yeah. Sorry, I got really emotional. <laughs> In a plastic. Right, I... Yeah, exactly. All right, I'll speak to you very soon. Cheers. See you. Right. Thanks so much. See you. See you. Take care. Bye. Uh, that was great. That was a great show. Uh, it was great to have, obviously, those two heroes and those two incredible nurses. So, cheers, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and lots of love. And I will see you in the week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.